Angela. Yes. How'd you sleep on election night? <laughs> Ironically, I slept great. I slept oh. better than I have in months. <laughs> wow. I want to um, hear about this. Yes. Well, it's because I took sleepy time drugs and <laughs> went to bed at 8 p.m. <laughs> just after I put the kids to bed. That's great. That sounds like an excellent election night self-care regimen. Yeah. It's been downhill since then. But <laughs> <laughs> but I gave myself that gift one night. One night. This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. Every mother works, now more than ever, and we're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. And we are in no danger of running out of material. 2020. What the fuck? (laughs) I'm your host, Catherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Garbez. So, Angela, as we are recording this introduction, the election has happened, but there is still a lot of uncertainty and unease about what our country is going to look like overall and how or if we can ever get back to a shared sense of reality. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on this? Um, I mean... I guess just to tell you where I'm at, I'm like, do we ever as a nation have a shared sense of reality, right? Right. Like, the country started as people coming here and being like, we're just going to take this land from people (laughs) and kill them. Right. I'm not sure that we've ever had a a shared sense of reality. For the, the growth and development of this country, people thought it was okay to own other people. Right. So that's where I'm starting from. Um, Yeah. And I I don't mean to laugh because it's really – I don't feel – I don't, I refuse, I don't think I can, I can't afford to give up hope, right? But I've, it's really hard for me to imagine, like, I'm sort of obsessed with this idea of this shared reality. Like, in this moment, I think about, like, Americans are obsessed with freedom, right? Like, that's our big thing, supposedly. <laughs> but, our big um, thing! But right now, I feel like, for, like, half the country, freedom means you don't have to wear a mask, right? Right. And for the rest of the country... It means not getting COVID and dying or going bankrupt. So, I don't know. Like, I'm with you. Like, I feel a tremendous amount of unease and uncertainty. Right. And I'm definitely reckoning with the idea that there's no—nothing that happens in this election is going to erase or fix what has happened and what is going to—it doesn't just negate the last— more than four years, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. just wipe the slate clean and fix everything. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think uncertainty is really, really stressful. And we really only have to look back to just earlier this year in March, as COVID lockdown started around the country, to remind ourselves what we've already learned personally and collectively about navigating national and global uncertainty. So our mo- our recent history actually could provide an important guide in, in the days and months ahead. So today we're sharing a really powerful conversation with author Danny McLean. Danny is a journalist and wrote the great book, We Live for the Weed, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. Danny is a 42-year-old unpartnered parent and lives with her four-year-old daughter in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Her own mother and her daughter's paternal grandparents live close by. Danny has spent years researching and reporting on networks of support around chosen family, really grounded in the experience of Black mothers. In our conversation with her, we dove back into those moments of fear and uncertainty at the beginning of the pandemic and the distrust we had in our government's ability to lead and give us clear directions to keep us safe. I think reflecting on this moment in our very recent history really provides for some insight into what we need to remember as we navigate all the new uncertainties that lie ahead. Let's take a listen to Danny reliving that time of early lockdown and how she was reacting to the news and conversations she was having with friends. Okay, what we have to do is just go in our homes and shut the door. So whoever your family is that you live with, that is your, we use this language now, we didn't use it back then, but pod, right? Like, mm-hmm. those are your people and you are you can't go outside of that. And so the other people who are parents started talking about how they were going to care for their kids. And those people are also partnered. So it was all about, well, my husband and I are going to do this. And like, it was just kind of assumed that they would be able to retreat in their homes and shut the door and like be able to survive. And it was obvious to me, as soon as I started understanding what social distancing required, I can't do this because I live alone with my daughter. I was going to have to figure out how to stay safe and also maintain contact with the people who support me in raising my daughter. And so I just remember kind of feeling like I'm on my own. I have to figure out what does it mean to parent, you know, my daughter can't go to preschool. How am I supposed to care Mm -hmm. for her when I need help? I need help so that I can work. Yeah, I remember at the beginning thinking in that stage when we were all you know, I didn't want to give up. Uh, there's one family who is our family, basically. That's the pod now. And we didn't want to give up that play date, even though the child care center had closed, because I felt like we all needed that. But I remember thinking, what if, you know, in the situation that you're in, if you're unpartnered, what happens then? Because all of the coverage that you are seeing, the resources that are out there are talking about a very much a nuclear family. I just wonder, could you tell us, like, what, I know that you're someone that places a lot of importance and that your family life functions, right, on, outside of the nuclear family structure. Like, who are the people that are in your life, um, in your family, and what did that do? I mean, you're facing cutting yourself off from them. What was that process like? It was, it was tricky. And, you know, I remember thinking, I used to live in the Bay Area in, in Oakland, and I had a lot of friends there who were part of polyamorous communities. And, like, I remember in those early days being like, I have to talk to William Winters. Like, I have to talk to my, he's one of my friends who's like a, throws a lot of play parties and that kind of thing. And I was like, a central piece of polyamory is having awkward communications to set boundaries. <laughs> and and I'm not, I don't practice polyamory, but like, this is one of my homies. So like he and I have had a ton of conversations about this. And I was like, we need leadership from the polyamorous community right now because they, they know how to do this. Right. And I actually like am nervous about having a conversation with my daughter's dad about like, sorry, but I'm about to have to be all up in your business about mm-hmm. who you're seeing, how you're being safe when you're seeing them. Like, 
Um, and so, okay, so who is in my family that I had to have these conversations with? The, the most important person was my mom because she cares for my daughter every weekday so that I can work. I knew I had to have a conversation with her paternal grandparents because they're both about a decade older than my mom. My mom is in her mid sixties and they're in their mid seventies. And I wanted them to know, Hey, like I want Isabel to be able to spend time with you, but I am really, really afraid that we're going to get you sick. And I don't know how you're understanding the situation, but I'm understanding it as incredibly high risk. And I'm terrified. I don't want to get you guys sick. And so I just had a bunch of conversations. And what I learned was that there's no perfect way to do it. It means, you know, having very honest conversations where typically you're not up in people's business about who they're seeing and how they're spending time together. And I also think one thing that helped me eventually was realizing I am not in control. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's like the larger lesson of this situation in general. I can be a bit of a, I don't want to say control freak, but I want things to go smoothly. I want, I mean, this is just, this has been a big lesson of parenting to me that the more organized I am and the more kind of thinking ahead I do, the easier my life is. And so realizing like that's not really going to work in this situation because there are just too many unknowns. I can't control everybody's behavior. And also I think once we were a few months in realizing this is going to last a while, we we're just going to have to learn as we go. It's not all going to be perfect right now. We just are going to have to learn as we go. And hopefully nobody's going to get sick as part of the learning. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that having to have those conversations of what level of risk are you comfortable with? You know, like the family that we are basically we've morphed with, right? I mean, it was really a conversation of, I don't want to ask you everything that you're doing, right? But we are kind of throwing our fates in together, right? And are are we okay with that? Are we going to be accepting of that? And I think it was also, you know, into that extent of, you know, the government, especially at the federal level, is not helping. I mean, the, the things that we were given was like social distance, stay at home, and then we never heard anything again. Right. Right? Like, the thing that never came into play, too, was a conversation about mental health. Yep. Right? Because that's the other thing, what isolation does, right? You can live with the, you know, I understand trying to put, like, risk low, but what that does to you over time, <laughs> that's missing. It's, and, you know, and also for parents, it's especially hard. And I think also, if we take ourselves back to that time in March, we understood so little. Like, as you said, it was like, stay at home, social distance. But we were also at a place where we're like, we're all going to die from touching our mail. Like, that was, like, <laughs> right. part of the actual conversation. <laughs> and, and also, like, <laughs> and... Also, it's like, we're all going to die if you get 5.5 feet closer to your grandparents. And you're going to have yeah. to live with that guilt for the rest of your life. So, like, yep. it's even even though this is this was six months ago, seven months ago, it's hard to even remember how fearful and little we knew. And it did feel like, okay, well, what article did you read? And did you read the latest study? And did you – and trying to keep up with that. And I think this part also about – Mental health definitely came into play a lot for me. Like, we have our parents here where we live in North Carolina, and we never separated from my my mother-in-law. Like, she was just, she was the rock. And honestly, there were so many times where I was so afraid that we were going to kill her. And But it was like, 
we could kill her. She's, but not but that sounds terrible. <laughs> like I can't believe I just said that. It's like we're so worried that we're gonna kill her. But at, but at the same time, we're like we're doing everything we can to be safe, and we need her so badly. Yes, that we will not be able to f- survive as a family without her because of how intense our situation was when my older son was not in school anymore and we had twin newborns. And so that was these just kind of incredibly painful conversations of negotiating and renegotiating these situations that I don't, you know, unprecedented in my life. And I honestly hope I never have to go through something like that again. Um, Because that was just, it was like... My my husband Travis and I knew if we were left us and our three kids alone in our house at that stage of our lives, our family's whole existence was in peril in all sorts of different ways. And so that was made very clear to me in the beginning. And something, Danny, I wanted to ask you is that last season of the show, we really challenged this notion around the nuclear family. And I've definitely come to see the pedestal of the nuclear family actually sort of feeds racist and classist narrative about what family should look like. And the view of the single parent is someone who is both, you know, to be pitied and also to be denigrated for, you know, making poor choices or something like that. What do you think our current crisis has further revealed or highlighted about this idealized nuclear family? Well, you know, I I appreciate what you just said about realizing how much you needed your mother-in-law, how much you need your mother-in-law, because there's a way that I was talking about my situation as an unpartnered parent to my daughter and, and feeling like I need my mom, like I need outside help because of my situation. But the more I've talked to people, you know, even who are partnered and married, I'm like, they need their moms too. Like they need whoever their support system is too. And so I think there's a way that this pandemic is revealing that two adults isn't enough. I know that one adult isn't enough, but there's been this narrative that two adults is somehow enough for for kids. And I think that more and more people are realizing Healthy parenting means parenting in community. Healthy parenting means parenting in intergenerational environments. Now, of course, we've added on the pressure of not only, it's not like people are just at home with their kids and childcare is their only responsibility. There's the added piece of like, we're supposed to be, you know, working full time and also caring for our children. And nobody can do that, whether they're, if, you know, if there are two parents, if both parents are employed, where is the childcare help coming from? Um, So I think what's interesting is that like everything, it feels like like everything in our society right now, it's just all up for grabs. Like no one knows, no one knows how this is going to shake out. No one knows how and whether we're going to rethink family structure in the wake of this. No one knows how and whether we're going to rethink, you know, work, like work from home, remote working, But it feels hopeful because it feels like some of the assumptions about the sanctity and efficiency of the nuclear family have been exposed for what they are. So I have to say, like, one of the (laughs) sometimes when I talk to my partnered friends, 
I'm really glad that I'm the only grown up here. And that like, I kind of ship my daughter off. And then I have a whole day of solitude to work. And that when I put my daughter to bed, I sit right there in that corner of the couch and I like watch TV or read a book. In some ways, I don't want to idealize my singleness because that I, that's not what's going on. But I am aware of the privilege of not also having to negotiate an adult relationship at this moment where, where it's not just about like romance. It's the pressure cooker of like maintaining a household in the middle of a pandemic alongside someone else. And so Mm -hmm. there's a way in which like, sometimes I feel the pity, you know, from friends who are like, I don't know how you're handling it. Or especially earlier on in this process, I don't know how you're doing it. And I'd be like, well, I just dropped my daughter off at my mom's house. Like I hear your husband in the background. I don't know how you're doing it. We'll be right back with more from Danny McLean about how living for the we may be an important part for all of us in moving forward. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We are building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening It's a great way to keep Double Shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. 
thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. Welcome back. I'm Angela Garbez, and I'm here with Double Shift host Catherine Goldstein and our guest Danny McLean, author of the book We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. So Catherine, you and I have been talking quite a bit about language and our word choices, and we were curious about the community orientation of Danny's title. Yeah, I love the title of her book. So when we talk about movements for equity and racial justice, we tend to frame them as fights or struggles. And that language is actually pretty violent and represents an aggressive worldview. Yep. I think we use the word fight so often, we don't even think about what it means, honestly. Right. And I think it leaves out the resiliency and the imagination that's needed to to work for things. And endurance, yes. you know? You know, also, I noticed this summer, I don't know if you noticed this, on social media during this summer of protesting, it seemed like everyone was posting pictures of books um, and their anti-racist reading lists. I also noticed that, yes. And I mean, I think it's great that people are doing this reading, but it struck me as sort of like the, it was like centering people in their like individual personal projects as though not being racist is like a I don't know, like a self-improvement thing or an assignment that they could yes, do as a, right. to emerge as a better individual. <laughs> so given all of that, you know, Danny's title, with its emphasis on we instead of I and living instead of fighting, feels really significant. Yeah, I totally agree. All of these points seem especially relevant right now as we are navigating this political moment where America's just complete obsession with individualism and how that is reflecting in our political choices, like, feels really heavy to me right now. Yeah. So Danny shared with us the story of the title of the book and how it came from a conversation she had with Kat Brooks, an Oakland activist and a longtime voice against police violence. Kat Brooks was a prominent voice in the wake of the murder of Oscar Grant, um, who you might remember as a young Black man who was shot in the back by Bay Area Rapid Transit Police in 2009. Yeah, I do remember that. At the time that Danny spoke with her, Kat was actually running for mayor of Oakland. And so she was in the middle of this, you know, busy campaign, And but she made time to sit down with me. And at that point, her daughter was, I think, 12. And she was telling me a story about how her daughter said to her once, Mom, you know, we're always, like, at a rally or we're always at a protest or we're always, like, sitting with a family who's grieving and supporting them. Can we, you know, I wish that we could just be like other families and, like, go to Disney World or take a hike or, you know, whatever. And, of course, Kat was saying, like, we do those things, but maybe not as much as my daughter would like. And she said, I tell my daughter all the time, and it's harsh, but we don't live for the I, we live for the we. And as soon as she said that, I was like, that's the title. Because mm -hmm. I had been reading, you know, Patricia Hill Collins and Audre Lorde and like all of the kind of canon of literature on Black motherhood. And everybody, whether they were writing in the 80s or 
you know, throughout the century, they all were making this point that the unique thing about Black motherhood is that it's not, even if you are partnered and even if you have a nuclear family, that's not your orientation to motherhood. It's like, I'm just in charge of these people. I just care about this kid and these biological kids. I'm community mothering or other mothering, as Patricia Hill Collins, the sociologist said. I have my, if my child is dealing with something, then I know that her peers are, are dealing with the same thing. So why advocate just for my kid? I might as well, you know, see if I can join forces with other families and advocate for all of these children together. And so when Kat Brooks said that, you know, we live for the we, it just felt like such a concise articulation of this point that I had heard other scholars make. And I think that has become a real goal that I hold is, and I don't know how to do it yet. I mean, this is kind of why I wrote the book was I want to learn how to parent in community and parent as part of a community that I feel has my back and my child's back. Now I do that to a certain extent, as I mentioned, my mom plays a big role in our, in our lives, my daughter's dad and his parents. And I want to figure out how to strengthen the friendships that I have so that it's not just like these are our friends and we're going on a play date, but that we like have a real commitment to one another that when I go and do a tour of this kindergarten for my kid, I'm going to sit with you and talk about what I saw and, and like, we're going to think together. Does this feel like a safe place for black kids to be? And like, where are you going to send your kid to school? Cause I want them to have peers. And, and it's not just about educational choices either. Right. It's about like, what kind of, who are we going to maybe let's do a voter guide together. So for the next city council race, we are like, you know, evaluating candidates on the basis of, do they align with our family's values? I think there are all kinds of ways to create community in a way that's meaningful in a way that, that supports families. And like I said, I do it. I want to do it for my daughter, but I really need support too. Mm -hmm. I want to put her in community with peers that are going to be good for her, but I need peers who are going to be good for me too. And so That's really the thinking um, behind the title of the book and and really what I'm trying to live into. It it seems like that idea really um, in the time that we're living in now, we're really experiencing a sort of focus on strengthening a smaller number of ties rather than trying to have as many ties as possible. So where can we put our time and investment into which relationships, which are which relationships are really going to be primary in our lives and how do we strengthen those rather than how do we stay in touch with as many people as possible? So I, I think that the idea of we live for the we can be global, but also can be personal in really strengthening the community, you know, your chosen community. I think that's really powerful. That feels so true, right? I mean for all of us, the world just got so much smaller. I mean, one of the things, so I live in Cincinnati, which is my hometown after really 20 years of living elsewhere around the country. And prior to the pandemic, I was like traveling at least once a month for work and to see friends. And that has been a change for me is figuring out, no, I actually live here. Like, this is actually where I am. And I can text with my friends and I can be on the phone or on Zoom, but like, I actually need to strengthen ties with people here because this is where we live. And it's not enough for my kid to be like FaceTiming or Zooming with her aunties who live all around the country and the world. Like, she needs to have those close relationships with 
people who she can see and touch and, and go to the playground with and that kind of thing. So that has been figuring out how to strengthen those fewer ties has been a real project that I'm engaged in right now. of Danny's work that has really stuck with me over time is that she helps all parents see how the choices we make, whether that's schools we send our kids to, the neighborhoods we live in, where we shop, what we eat, these aren't just lifestyle choices or, you know, a series of personal preferences. Right, right, right. They actually, like, those decisions actually carry weight and reflect deeper political values, even if we don't fully realize it. So, Let's take a listen as you ask her, Angela, how race can factor into this worldview. A lot of parents of color see decisions, see almost everything as political, right? And I think that it's, um, I don't want to, you know, totally generalize, but I think a lot of white parents just have had the luxury of not seeing things as political. They're able to compartmentalize things. Um, But I wonder... I wanted to ask you, you know, especially in light of recent events and when we're seeing white people out on the streets, right? Do you think that that's shifting? Or what's your sense of that? I think that this, the events of this summer would lead us to believe that there's a new kind of interest in understanding how race and white supremacy function and power and policing function in this society. I am not sure that it's shifting because even the conversations we were having in June and July have really quieted down. Um, But I'm hopeful, you know, I hope that, I hope that more parents are really examining and investigating policing and, and racism. And I hope that it's not just something that they're doing for themselves as adults, but conversations that they're sharing with their kids I think that, you know, it's funny because I live in the city. I live in Cincinnati proper, but my mom lives in the suburbs and I drive my daughter out to her, out to my mom's house pretty much every day. And one thing that has really caught my eye in recent months is that there are these signs in these suburban neighborhoods that say, we love our, like, we love our, we love Indian our Muslim Hill. neighbor. <laughs> no, well, no. those are, those are, also interesting, but <laughs> these say, um, so the Rangers is like what this neighborhood calls their police force, which oh. is like, this is a, this, this is, is a, a turn. Very, yes, yes, yes. Right. So you'll see these signs in yards that say, we love our Indian Hill Rangers, or you drive through the neighboring suburban neighborhood and it says, we love our Madeira police. And so mm-hmm. I just have been like, kind of, you know, it's been a real wake-up call to me that while there has been this wave of kind of, like, interest in anti-racism among, like, a certain set of Mm -hmm. progressive or maybe even just, like, moderate white people, that there is a backlash. And that not only is there a backlash, but there's, like, this... It almost feels like an affront. Like, these people over here are having this conversation about policing and, like, people... Black people are talking about you know, the police as an oppressive force, but we love our local cops. It's kind of like the, you know, battle cry and response to Black Lives Matter is like, we love our local cops. So anyway, I mentioned that just to say that I think for some people, the events of this summer got them curious about, you know, learning more about and being more conscious around their own decision-making and 
talking to their kids about policing and white supremacy. And then I'm also very aware that there's a, another conversation happening that's like very pro-law enforcement and just resistant to, you know, examining these issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel more cynical about it than I would like to be, but I feel sort of comforted by your answer of hearing you talk about it because it feels really reflective of reality, right? Like, right. Um, people are really going to rise up in defense of things that maybe they don't even understand why they're doing that. Exactly. So, Angela... I want to just hit pause on this thought in our conversation with Danny and reflect on this idea of people rising up in defense of things when people feel threatened, which I'm thinking about a lot since the election. Yeah. (laughs) Are you seeing this comment with any new insights in terms of how different demographic groups broke down in terms of backing Trump? You know, I don't know that I have new insight. Uh, unfortunately, I, I would probably classify it as renewed cynicism. <laughs> um, and I think I was sort of, you know, in some corner of my heart hoping like that, yeah, of course, we all want this to be a complete repudiation of racism and, you know, demagoguery and fascism. But like that's very clearly didn't happen, right? Like 2016 was not an aberration. Like, this is who we are as a country. And, I mean, my number one thing, if you think about, like, there's all this talk about demographics, right, of voter shifting and that kind of thing this time around. And I don't know. I mean, like, white women, if you want to know why people of color and I have a hard time trusting you, (laughs) like, this is why, right? Like, We'll see how the numbers shake out, but it's looking like over 50% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Again. You know, people will rise up and protect their proximity to power, real or imagined, right, rather than, like, work on behalf of others or demand more for themselves. And that's really disappointing. And right. I think this is like, to me, this is like a white, like white people need to come get your people, right? Like, I know that there's like all this talk about, you know, like there were more black voters or Latinx voters, right? But that's like scapegoating to me. Those are real things. And like the Democratic Party has to deal with the fact that, I, I mean, I grew up in a household where my father, he's an independent, but he voted Republican my entire life growing up. But he's he hasn't voted Republican since 2008, right? So I am fully aware that, like, people of color, ethnic groups, like, we are not a monolith. Like, we change, yeah. individuals change. But I think all of this is still a distraction from the main thing, which is that three out of every five white voters is a Trump voter. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think... F- as I'm processing this, and I still think there's so much more f- to process, I think, you know, 2016, seeing how many women voted for Trump, for me, white women, uh, was really shocking. And this time it, it wasn't shocking, but it, it just really hurt. Yeah. <laughs> like, it really, it hit. And it's sort of yeah. just like, um, I kind of feel like crying. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I mean, everything you say is, is is so true. It just like, and it's not that I am delusional about the world that I live in, but at the same time, I'm like, 
it's just sort of like this heavy sense of renewal of like, no, this wasn't about internalized sexism against Hillary Clinton. Hmm. You know, like that was one thing that maybe I could attribute it to in 2016. Yeah. And, and there was that. Yeah, That's I mean, real. that yeah. was a thing. But that was one thing that I could attribute it to. But, you know, so now this is about something clearly, I mean, race is obviously a huge factor, proximity to power. But um, I, I don't have a sense of, like, I can fully explain or answer for this, but I just have to sit with how bad this reality feels, you know? Yeah. And that's just part of the process of how we can do the important work coming out of this is right now we're in the moment of just, like, I'm not going to push it off and I'm just going to, like, live with this, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have to sit with it. Right. right? Like, I wanted to think that it would be different. I mean, I remember seeing Trump out there, like, begging suburban white women to like him, which at the time right. I thought was pathetic. But it turns out he didn't He didn't really need to do that, right? <laughs> like, I just—I think that I thought over the last four years that, like, we—people were confronting that. And I see—I know people close to me. You know, I don't yeah. doubt that there have been people really doing that work. There's just so many more people. It's not enough. Like, we haven't fully confronted— um, what racism does to people. And I think that people have a hard time recognizing it in themselves, right, too. I think, like, another element that's really painful is, I, I agree, I think, of course, you know, among my friends and among listeners I hear from in the double shift or women that I interview in my journalism, like, I feel like it does feel like people are reckoning with this and making small steps towards positive change and being self-reflecting and self-critical in their own worldviews and also, you know, trying to do the work out outside of it. But then, you know, it's really painful to live here in North Carolina where the vote is so close. And, you know, as we're recording this, it looks like Trump's going to win and the incumbent senator, Republican senator is going to win in pretty close elections. And just being like, yeah, this is my, this is my community. It doesn't feel like my community. I live in a county which is like among the most liberal counties probably in the country. But I realize it's easy to say like, well, that's not my, I I can say that's not my county. My county's different. We're different. Mm. But maybe that's, that's not really the answer, the long-term solution that that pushes it off on other people, you know? Yeah. So through this whole fall, I've actually been thinking a lot about this idea of interest convergence, which is the idea, uh, it's a critical idea in critical race theory that Black people only achieve civil rights victories when it's also in the interest of white people. And I wanted to know if Danny thought the events of this past summer and the mass protests against police violence was an example of this idea of interest convergence. Uh, it's a great question. And I think what it what it makes me wonder, the question that immediately comes to mind is, when you had people take to the streets, right, when you had like this summer, it feels like so long ago, but it wasn't. But when you saw people 
taking to the streets all over the country after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. What was it that really drove people into the streets? Was it that they felt threatened or was it that they just morally felt like they needed to take a stand because they were so disturbed by what they had seen? And if the answer is the latter, then does that indicate interest convergence? Right. Because you're not like ever you're, those, you know, you're not worried that that's going to happen to you. You don't want that to happen to George Floyd. You don't want that to happen to Breonna Taylor. And so I think now what was fascinating about this summer, and to me, this was like, this is what was so deep and to my mind knew about what happened this summer. Now, I didn't, you know, I was not out in the streets, but I was glued to Twitter. And what blew my mind was watching the police target press and not just Omar Jimenez of CNN, a black man, but like white, you're you're like local white news reporter, your local white news gatherer. It happened here in Cincinnati. I saw it happen in other parts where, you know, it was caught on camera of like the police pointing guns at some little petite blonde white woman who's out trying to gather the news, watching the police um, push that white man in Buffalo or wherever it was, that, that elder. Man, yeah. who, oh my gosh, who fell back and cracked yeah. his head open. Watching the police treat white bodies the way they have always treated black bodies, that was different for me. And and I wonder if that, I think, I think people who saw those images, white people were outraged and shocked and surprised that that might happen to them. And I think that that, raised a new level of consciousness around like, look what the police do. Like, why are they doing this? They're not even threatened. Like, Mm -hmm. why would they do this? But today, if you were to ask people, white people, do you feel threatened by the police? Do you feel like it's in your interest to take some power away from police forces? I wonder what they, I wonder what people would say. I'm not sure. So we have all been hearing this vote, 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 vote stuff for the last many months. And now, of course, voting is over, at least for the next two years. So I wanted to know from Danny how we should translate that vote, 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 vote energy into other kinds of community action. Well, here's what she had to say about that. You know, at this point, this sounds so cynical, but I'm just like, You either have it in you or you don't. Like, I don't really understand, like, what, where the convincing Mm. comes in. You know, it's like, you either see what an absolute mess this is and you, like, (laughs) are going to do something or just you're not. And no shade. Like, I get it if you're like, I am actually really busy with, you know, taking care of my kids or whatever. Like, fine. I'm not going to waste a whole bunch of breath, like, trying to convince you that you should be engaged. But I do think that there are often smaller steps. I think people get overwhelmed. You know, they think like, I can't do this because it's going to be some huge time suck. And yeah, but if you, if you're looking for things to do, I think that there are enough kind of like easy lifts, you know, this community piece, ask your friends, like, what are they doing? Someone in your network is engaged in some way. Can you tap into the resources that they, that they know about and um, figure out how to engage? I think that's all so important. I think sometimes the overwhelmed people are like, well, if I'm not getting this national legislation passed, then therefore, like, my efforts are wasted. And I think that it's just a really important reminder that, like, you know, the text after bed, the the 
you know, getting involved with the local school board, like that matters too. Donating what you can to a bailout fund, um, like that you're not somehow, if you're not sort of like on Capitol Hill or at every single protest, you're not doing something, you know, like I think that's, those are important reminders. I mean, especially because we're in this moment where the federal government, you know, is just like, many of us feel completely alienated from anything that they're even engaged in. And so I think what that's shown us is that what's happening on Capitol Hill is happening. We still have to live in our communities. And so we have to help each other. And mutual aid can be like driving people to the polls to vote or like taking a pot of soup over to somebody who got sick. I mean, I think sometimes we think that engagement is some huge task that's just gonna, that we're gonna be completely burdened by. And I think there are so many ways that we can get involved and that even just caring for each other, you know, is like political, is deeply political. That's That's what I've been sitting here thinking. I've been wanting to say how, just to remind ourselves that small, like small gestures are enough. I think all, something that I've said a lot is if we survive, and I think we're going to (laughs) survive, It's not because someone came to save us, right? It's because we helped each other, you know? And thinking about what you were saying, how, you know, this, our family, I would just want to shout out the Chase Chens, who are basically (laughs) our family, you know? Um, They have two daughters who are our daughter's age. And it is like we have started, we, you know, we do play dates. They're more than play dates, really. And thank you for helping me see that. Mm. Um, You know, three days a week after school, our daughters get together and play. And then we, the other family who's not hosting the play picks up the little ones and takes them over to the house where where the playing is happening. But we've turned Wednesday nights into dinner. And when I showed up there last week, the camera had just like zoomed out and I was unable to refocus on small things. I just was so overwhelmed with what was going on. And just to be held in a space where someone made me soup and Mm -hmm. let me cry (laughs) at their dining room table gave me just this relief that felt like I then had energy to face things again, right? And also get to work, get back to work, right? But yeah, I really think like the smallest acts, like asking someone how they are and is there anything I can help you with? Like, Those are radical, big things in someone's life. (laughs) That's right. That was author Danny McLean talking with co-host Angela Garbez and me, Catherine Goldstein. If you want to hear more from our conversation with Danny, we tell a bunch of great pandemic life stories become a member of The Double Shift. It starts at $5 a month. And if what we're doing at The Double Shift has meant something to you, it would mean so much to me if you became a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. Also, an update. If you listen to episode two of this season, The Childcare Game Changer, I am super excited to tell you that the ballot initiative to get universal preschool for all three and four-year-olds passed in Multnomah County. Woohoo! <laughs> so inspiring to see how a local effort like this could lead the way for other communities. Go Portland! The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. 
Our co-host this season is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipur. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music is by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shreffel. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson, Eric Newsom, and Lauren Smith-Brody. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and Acton Family Giving. And you, our members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. <laughs>